Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we are covering every single episode of Good Omens based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. I'm Lina. And I'm Vero. And today we're talking about episode two, The Book. Did you think that they were going to talk about the Bible? No. Because the book is usually referred, the Bible is usually referred, you know what I mean. One of those. The book with a capital T and B is usually the Bible. And there also is a holy Bible in this episode right next to the angel wings cocoa mug of Xerophel. By the way, that mug is so cute and I kind of really want it. I held a very similar mug. It's extremely uncomfortable because it does not fit well in your hand. So yes, it's pretty, but it's awkward. Like Xerophel. <laughs> oh my god. <gasps> I'm so good this time. Like, seriously, I'm very happy with my associations this time. So proud of you. Yeah. Let's get into my absolutely ginormous summary. We learn about witches and witch finders and most importantly, a book full of true predictions while continuing to watch the adorable relationship of our two mains. Hey. Hey. Oh God, it was just uh, so much. Now, for British word of the episode, I have two. You know what? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with bugger because bugger is used multiple times in this episode, and it's just such an English thing for me. Oh, bugger! Because uh, we get adultery using it in the flashback, and we also get, I believe, sergeant. What's his face? Do you mean thou shalt not commit adultery? No, I mean adultery, falsifier. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, it is said multiple times in this episode, so I'm gonna go with that one. What it reminds me of, the first thing, is actually based on a word from Czech, which is a booger, which is actually the thing you can find in your nose when you pick your nose. It's the same in English. A booger is the... But that's booger. Yeah. In, in Czech, we spell it with a U. Ah. So when I see bugger, which is spelled with a U, that's the first thing that I remember. However, this is not from Czech. It is a noun that is from the Middle English booger, which is from the Anglo-French bugle, which is from the medieval Latin bulgarus, which literally means Bulgarian. What? From the association of Bulgaria with the bogomils which is also a word, who were accused of sodomy. Wow. So what is the meaning of a bugger? As, as per usual, there's multiple different meanings. It can be used as damn, which is the use in this episode. It can also be used as a person, as a noun. So, you know, it can be a, a fellow, a chap, a rascal, but also... It means a sodomite, which is the original meaning. I did not know that. This is something new that I found when I was looking this up. So yeah, Miriam Webster tells us that as a noun in the original sodomy or sodomite, meaning it was originally defined in 1540 as a verb, it was defined in 1560. And then as a noun of like, you know, the little bit more relaxed, the uh, little rascal and stuff, it was kind of brought back to the language in 1955. Wow. I always thought bugger just basically was synonymous with fucker. 
bugger bastards annoying thing. For me, it was like bugger off, fuck off. Bugger off is the verb. Yeah, and so a bugger or a fucker, like it, it, for me, it was basically the same word. English people can also use it as, and there is this beautiful example on the Merriam-Webster website. Put down my keys and now I can't find the buggers. So it's like... <laughs> A replacement for a word, which is showing off the annoyance with the with the subject. Beautiful. Very, very <laughs> great choice. I actually forgot to write my British <gasps> word of the episode, so I had to very quickly correct my mistake before we started recording. We swapped our roles this week. And my only memory of a British British word this episode comes from Agnes Nutter. And she says, Thou art tardy. And so I went with tardy. What I think it means, it means lazy or late. What it actually means, delayed or late or slow in action or response or sluggish. Where it comes from is mid-16th century French tardif and that comes from Latin tardos which means slow. So it's very boring compared to yours but I still love it. No, it's it's a great word. So this week it's absolutely turned around and I love that you had two prepped. I had one more or less. So yeah, yours had more background. Let's see how the future entertains our listeners. Speaking of entertaining our listeners, it is now time for the facts and funs. Let's see how much makes it into the episode, if any. One of Adam's friends has the middle name Moonchild. While this is implied to be a hippie name, it is in fact Alistair Crowley's name for the Antichrist. Oh! Yup. It is also the name Bastian gives the childlike empress in the never-ending story. But Crowley's book is from before the never-ending story. Okay. So... Well, t- is it really? Yes. <laughs> Jack Whitehall is introduced as series regular Newton Pulsifer. Prior to Newton's first appearance, Whitehall makes a cameo as Newton's ancestor, though shalt not commit adultery Pulsifer. I did not realize that the first time I watched this show that it's the same actor. Me neither. I I had to have it pointed out by somebody. But since I watched this episode so many times, I knew watching this time that this was happening. And he is so good at being a different character. Like his voice is different. His demeanor is different, obviously, because they're such different people. So I didn't know only once I read up on it. So whoops. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, spoiler alert for the book, that he is actually described as a spitting image of adultery as well. But that might be just in my head. I mean, it makes sense to cast the same person for the... Yes, absolutely. Speaking of thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer, his sidekick is Witchfinder Private Max. He could be named for Dirk Max, who directed the BBC Radio 4 full cast production of Good Omens. The Radio 4 production was the first ever dramatization of the book. Dirk Max also has created audio dramas of other gaming books, including Anansi Boys, Neverwhere, Stardust and The Sandman. So it seems like a very big coincidence for his name to show up to not be actually deliberate. Agnes fills her petticoats with roofing nails. In the 1600s, roofing nails did not exist, roof shingles being a relatively modern invention. In addition, nails were handmade and expensive and would never have been available in a barrel as is shown on the show. Except Agnes, 
knew everything that was going to happen and she saw everything that was going to happen. So maybe she just handmade her own. Yeah, unlikely. <laughs> and lastly, and I also missed this the first time I watched this, the stripes and colors of Newt's knitted tie are a direct homage to the very long scarf of Tom Baker's fourth doctor, a predecessor of David Tennant's 10th doctor. Oh my god, I didn't notice that. I need to rewatch now. Goodbye. And it is a perfect match. <laughs> That's so good. Now that I know it's impossible not to see and I completely missed it. So I love it. Same. Thank you. That concludes the facts and funs. Thank you. That was lovely and made me very happy. Speaking of things that make me happy. That make us happy. Well, that make us happy. That's true. Previously on Good Omens. <laughs> We met a demon and we met an angel. We learn of the creation of the world. We learn the apocalypse is nigh and it'll all come down when a child, the Antichrist, turns 11. We also learned there was a little hiccup in the plan and now we don't know where the child is. Because it certainly isn't Warlock. Not that Warlock isn't fucked up enough to be the Antichrist. He's just missing some crucial, let's call it heritage. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I love it. And it's so nice to have it back. We start with the music that is associated with Good Omens. And seriously, just hearing this music gives me chills every single time. And it just makes me happy and nostalgic for some reason at the same time. It's so good. It's just such a great combination of anticipation and it is kind of like oldie timey but also it just fits really well to the atmosphere of the show and I yeah incredible so to those of you who don't know Vero just spent two days one night in London and she used the opportunity to visit a few of the locations that is true that are shown in this show and so now I have a question because you are a location expert the shop of Aziraphale, is that an actual location? And is it actually in Soho? So the street where it's supposed to be, we ended up not going there because we were very short on time. However, it's supposed to be, the street is supposed to be there. The bookshop is not. Ah. So uh, it is in Soho, the street, but the shop itself is not there. Next time I'm going to go to London, I want to go see and check out how accurate and how much of the street is actually conserved in the show. Because... We definitely know that the insides of the shop obviously are sets and definitely quite a good bit of the outdoorsy shots were probably made in the studio as well. Just judging by the way it is kind of set up and how what we see in the background and stuff like that. So that is something that we will try to get done on the one afternoon we have in London. Oh, we should certainly do that. That would mean that means that we should probably go earlier. However, I do know uh, multiple locations. I've been to two so far, which are very close to each other. They're both in St. James's Park or on the edge of St. James's Park. You will make a list of all the potential locations and then we will create a map and then we will see how much we can actually get done. That is actually, that sounds very organized and we shall do that together. You have the knowledge, I have the technique. Together we are unstoppable. Wow. It's such a good saying. What you, what you said just now, it feels like something groundbreaking. Like, you know, <laughs> like... There's no war without war. <laughs> For a second here, I thought you were being serious and trying to compliment my amazing <laughs> statement. And I was like, what is going on? And it's like, oh, no, you're being a Gabriel. Okay, perfect. 
So we meet Gabriel now and I have to say his coat is perfect and I want this coat. Even though I don't wear light colors, I don't care. I want this coat. Give it to me in black and I would be extra happy, but I would also just wear that. You're not wrong. However, uh, regarding their clothing, if you look at them, it they stick out like... Angels on a street of humans. <laughs> yeah, angels on earth. But basically that's the thing. Like if you just see as Aziraphel, Aziraphel, I'm just gonna let you struggle. It's entertaining to me and hopefully to our listeners. If you if you just see A's on no, uh, no on Earth, you did this to me. You don't really realize how different and specific his clothing is. But if you see three of them in the room with other people around, like normal people, actual humans around them, like dressed in the normal clothing, they stick out like a sore thumb. You can tell that they're somehow together. You don't know how, but they're somehow together. It's just so funny. The angels in general are incredibly bad at being humans. And one thing, obviously, I have to point out is Gabriel holds a ginormous book in his hands and he says human beings are so simple. The book he's holding is a book by Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management. It's actually a 2,000-page book that details how complicated Victorian life is. Of course, he chose that book. I love this is like a little nod to how actually out of touch and gullible angels are. They have no idea about humanity. Even that whole bit with the pornography and how proud they were of each other and themselves and how, oh, you're doing so well look at us we're so good we're killing it we're killing it yeah yeah we fooled all of them yeah we meet the other angel by name here and his name is Sandalfon and Azurafel mentions Sodom and Gomorrah so obviously I went into the internets because Sodom and Gomorrah I am vaguely familiar with, having read up on it before, but I did not remember the name Sandalfon. And so according to what I found, he's not actually part of anything relating to Sodom and Gomorrah. He is an archangel in Jewish and Christian writings, but not in scripture. Some of the earliest sources of Sandalfon refer to him as the prophet Elijah transfigured and risen to angelic status. And others describe him as the twin brother of Metatron, whose human origin as Enoch is similar to the human origin of Sandalfon. So mm-hmm. it's very curious and also with Metatron being very relevant in other movies and universes. It's very, very entertaining to me. But this is obviously a creative freedom to associate this angel name with Sodom and Gomorrah. I feel like there's a reason and that is the reason why I feel like I've heard this name before that because he might be mentioned in uh, relation to Metatron in like other shows. But I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? Like I remember anything. And the last tiny detour that I took in just the first scene, and there's going to be more, is obviously the angels go, something smells evil. And Zerophel answers, oh, that will be the Jeffrey Archer books. Do you know who Jeffrey Archer is? Because I did not. No. So I, of course, went into the internets and I found out that Jeffrey Archer is an author who also was an English politician and is a convicted criminal. His 1979 novel Cain and Abel (laughs) remains one of the best-selling books in the world with an estimated 35 million copies sold worldwide. 
Overall, his books have sold more than 320 million copies worldwide. He was a member of parliament, conservative, from 1969 to 1974, where he did not seek re-election after a financial scandal not what did land him in prison. On September 26th in the year 2000, Archer was charged with perjury and perverting the course of justice during the 1987 libel, libel, libel trial. Basically, he sued a tabloid, won by lying, and that bit him in the butt later on. Like, it's a whole thing that involves paying a woman for sex and then paying her for leaving the country. It's just very, very wild. But he committed perjury, and this is why he went to prison. Perjury is lying under oath to the court. What I don't understand is how is he one of the most selling authors in the world and I have never ever heard of him. I have never read this book. I have never heard of this author. It's just funny, obviously, even on a surface level, that his most successful book, Cain and Abel, is called Cain and Abel, and we are in this universe. So, yay. <laughs> to be fair, of of course, Azraphal... As Azraphal... Of course it would be in this bookshop because he's got everything. Except for one book, apparently. (laughs) Which is very, very sad. Uh, And he's so offended later on. We do get loads of exposition about the divine plan and about the Antichrist in this and the Four Horsemen. And the way it's done, again, it doesn't bother me. I love when we have enough exposition that I notice there's exposition but it's so well written that I'm like, yeah, give me, give me more. I am enjoying this, bitch. I don't mind exposition if it is well delivered and well phrased. Also John Hamm. <laughs> Both the <laughs> content and the delivery method are on par. So I'm very happy with it. Did you notice the super casual exchanging pestilence with pollution and just not even commenting on it. I did not notice that, no. They just super casually say war, famine, death and pollution. And it's just, yeah, there's no comment on it. It's just a thing, yeah. Because I actually thought they say pestilence. I was like, wait, they didn't. So I had to go back and make double sure. But they say pollution. Wow. Does that mean that fourth horseman of apocalypse is pollution? Obviously, yes. And I actually have to correct my statement from last episode. Israfel is not a very good actor. He is mm, not as good in this scene as he was last episode. And his acting gets worse and worse and worse throughout the entire episode. Because he gets more and more and more stressed. Yes. And so I rescind my previous statement because... Zerofeld's acting in this episode gets worse and worse and worse and Crowley's acting is actually perfect and spot on. So I was wrong. I have no problem admitting that. And that is all I have for our first scene. I love that you give me these options of removing these bits of audios and just keeping them for my own things. Of course. Speaking of Crowley, because I hate you sometimes and so I make horrible transitions for you, we now (laughs) go into Crowley's home and it's perfect. It fits him just as well as the bookshop fits Zerafel. It's so good. Also the chair, right? The chair is great, but did you notice the Mona Lisa in the background? I did not notice the Mona Lisa, but do you know the thing with the chair? I vaguely remember it. There was a whole thing that Crowley and Crowley have the same chair. So Crowley on Supernatural, played by Mark Shepard. Who? (laughs) A very rare guest at conventions. (laughs) 
very, very rare guests, especially at supernatural, con especially at specific supernatural conventions. However, uh, the chair that he sits on uh, when he is a king of hell for a very short amount of time on supernatural is actually the same chair that Crowley is sitting on in his apartment, which people have done screenshots and everything. I will look it up because I have not confirmed it because I remember that this was a thing. It's just painted darker in Good Omens, I think. Yeah, I think it's slightly different color, yeah, but... The one in Supernatural had, like, I think brown shades or something, but I remember this, like, uh, detail comparison and everything. Like, it is virtually the identical fucking chair. Yes, indeed it is. So you did not notice the Mona Lisa. It's not the known, known Mona Lisa. It looks like the previous sketch before you actually oh, do the painting. That would actually make so much sense. So it's so random as to why does he have it? Because we already know that all the great good artists, be it musicians or painters or whatever, they're probably all down in hell because this is one of the things he taunts Zerophel with, basically. So it would make sense that he has certain connections there. But why this? Why the Mona Lisa? And I know it's unlikely that I'm going to run into David Tennant again because I just <laughs> met him this year. But this is kind of a question I want to put on the list for David Tennant or Neil Gaiman. Why does Crowley have a sketch of the Mona Lisa? Yes, that's a great question. Perfect. Did you notice this one, or you probably did, but did you notice this one very relevant bits of information about Crowley in the scene? That he did not want to fall? That he is not... Oh, yeah. This is kind of a key aspect of his personality, though. The fact that he didn't choose this life, but he makes do with it. And he does whatever fits him the best, which is probably one of the reasons why he fell in the first place. Why he hung with the wrong people. Exactly. Something that he felt it was easy, so he's done it, and he now is bearing the consequences of that decision. And he's making the best of it. I'm kind of curious who exactly were the wrong people that he hung with like is it Hester all the way to the top <laughs> Lucifer huh. or is it something much more mundane for lack of a better word but this is something that I do not remember at all if there's ever more information and this is actually something that I kind of hope we get more in season two like more backstory on Aziraphale and Crowley why is Aziraphale the angel who got the flaming sword why did Crowley hang with the wrong people that caused him to fall? Like, give me backstories. You're right. It's something that we should keep an eye on. Having read the book, I feel like there might be more in the book. It's too long ago that I actually read it, so... It's been too long. I read it too quickly. I read it way too close to actually watching the series. So, like, a lot of things are jumbled in my head. I do have a feeling we might get more in the book about this particular situation or maybe rather more about his feelings towards it rather than just actual facts. But so that is for me the most relevant thing in this scene. I mean obviously like I said his acting here towards Ligar and Hester is spot on. It is absolutely hilarious that they're on the Pam and Sam show. Mm, of it's... course. <laughs> 
we are st- establishing a certain way of communication of hell with Crowley. And that is through a radio, through a TV. So they using various forms of transmission to actually transmit their message or having their conversations. So uh, I'm curious where that's going to go and if they're going to use more. Spoiler alert, I know they will. To me, it's more the demons are the more... modern (laughs) ones so they are tech savvy and the angels are more old school so they do the in-person shit but are they really more tech savvy because i mean compared to the angels yes i mean yes compared (laughs) to the angels but the bar is very low with the angels is it so low that it's a tavern and hades I'm sorry, I just love that so much. Anything else for you? No, no, no. I just I just really enjoyed this whole conversation and got that apartment. I would live in that apartment. I would probably get nightmares in that apartment, but... And depression. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what Crowley enjoys to have anyway. So I think that's kind of the goal. Maybe it wasn't all wrong that he fell. <laughs> wasn't the plan we come to one of my absolute favorite bits in the entire season and that is the whole process of summoning the horseman i absolutely love that we have an international express company driver because they outsource this kind of thing it's just oh my god just a quick note on this from me when i read this book absolute majority of the casting in this tv show is spot on for me however i have to say when i read this the delivery boy was actually a boy in my mind (laughs) this is an adult man i don't think that he was like a teenage boy or anything like that but he definitely felt like a much younger kind of a fella than what he actually is on the show so that was the one thing when i was like oh ah, never mind Worked for me nonetheless. I love it so fucking much. How nonchalant he just walks into the super tense situation. Someone doesn't believe in signposts. <laughs> it's just, wow, the shade of it all, you know? And also that he knows that the package is for her without asking the name or anything. He's very good delivery boy, man. He's very good at his job. I absolutely love it. So he delivers the package and... All war breaks loose. Yeah, because she was killing time, right? She was killing time and sometimes people. However, we actually do get a really, really, really hilarious quote at the beginning of the scene. Sometimes, despite all, peace breaks out. It is so funny because it is sad and true. Yeah, it's funny is because it's true is a thing quite a lot on this show. And it will happen multiple times, especially in this episode. And I'm expecting it's going to happen over and over and over again in the future episodes as well. But yeah. The situation itself is not relevant to the story, but it's very well acted. We get the doom of humanity, that the single little tiny little push of who's going to sign a peace treaty first is a reason that the entire... Well, I mean, war is the reason, but ego is the actual reason why this situation happens. War capitalizes on the human ego. Yeah. And so the threesome that was supposed to be a peace treaty turns into a complete shootout in the background. And if I saw it right, not a single person survives this. And with that happy note, we go into our beautiful intro that we're not talking about, but it's amazing, And next we go into 1656 to the last witch burning in England. 
And whenever I hear statements like that, I, of course, have to do my research. Sadly, I was not as successful as I would hope because I did not actually find out when the last burning of a witch occurred in England because burning witches wasn't the most common method of killing witches. Hanging actually was. Usually burning occurred when there were additional crimes to witchcraft that the woman was accused of. So, for example, if someone was accused of being a witch and putting like a curse on their husband or something. And so the last documented execution for witchcraft in England was in 1682, so after this, but that was a hanging. And the last burning of a witch in the British Isles was in 1727, but that was in Scotland. I did not find out when the exact last burning happened in England. So might have been 1656, might not have been. It probably was, because this is completely real story. It is history. I mean, remember the fucking bishop from the intro of episode one, actual dude who actually said that this is when the earth was created. So sometimes they actually use facts and sometimes they don't. And so it's uh, very hilarious to me because it. I love doing my research. This This is why Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's writing is perfect for you, because they will fuck with you so much. They will use reality to create fiction and they do it so well that you actually have to do your research and try to figure, well, you, because I do, yes, because I'm who you are as a person. (laughs) You have to like go and find these things. You remember last episode, I shed all over the whole star sign horoscope stuff. (laughs) So this week, I'm just going to take a very short dump on acupuncture because, well, in this universe, apparently acupuncture actually works, unlike this one. Do we think that acupuncture actually worked or did Agatha just know exactly what to do and just call it acupuncture too. She didn't call it acupuncture. The one pricked her all over and she says the pricking cured her arthritis and this implies that the pricking was acupuncture that fixed her arthritis. Okay, fair. Yeah, gotcha. And since there is no scientific evidence in our universe that acupuncture actually works. See, my brain went more to I pricked her all over in a different meaning and not say for work different meaning oh no 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 no. later on we see the witch pin i do know that that actually happens but that doesn't stop me from imagining that because he was a man after all and you're 12 also that obviously (laughs) so but that is gonna be the end of me uh shitting over other things for positive things agnes has like the actress for agnes has an incredibly pleasant voice and so I was not surprised when I found out that the same actress is the one who played her in the BBC radio adaption. Did you notice that when Agnes walks very fast through the crowd and in front of the crowd that you could actually hear the nails in her petticoats? Yes. That was such a nice touch. Yeah, this is why I, where I was like, wait a second, I thought that she put the nails and the explosive into the pyre. No, 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 that that could have been discovered. Yeah, but I don't know why like this was what was saved in my brain is what happened. And then I heard the clinging and then they do a little very fast close up to her feet, to her ankles. And that's the extra noise that they add to it. And it just clicked right back in and like, oh, yes, of course, that happened. 
Also, we got the whole, as they are walking towards her house, we got the whole list that you mentioned, the acupuncture, and she healed this, and she healed my son over here, and, and whatever. Yeah, she was good to them, so obviously kill her. Exactly. So th- they have this whole, like, oh, we found a witch. She's a witch. Burn her. Burn. It's so incredible. It's like, what? Oh, she saved my life, and she saved my child's life. Obviously, we have to kill her. Oh. Why are humans? It's very, very true. (laughs) More fiber in the diet and run more is good for your health. (laughs) All of these things, like she's giving them a hack on life way too early and they're just not having it. But like, this this is exactly what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about if you're right something fictional that is close enough to reality it's it's gonna have so much better effects and it's gonna have so much more impact on the viewers and this is one of the many many moments in this episode so of course we have the whole they put her on the pyre and she's like come closer come closer come closer which is like mwah perfect girl you the queen and then of course it's fuck explosion yay so we get all of this and then we with the book we moved over to the somewhat future (laughs) and we go to this tropical destination of Malibu, California whoa whoa I called it Fancy Beach Malibu. <laughs> now we're Americans. However, for some reason, the mother has a has an accent. I believe that that I could not place. Yeah, it felt like it was good. It was supposed to be a Spanish accent. I don't or like a, I don't know. You are our accent person. I can't place accents. I was. I, I couldn't figure it out. Also, I couldn't figure out why she has the accent. So the family must have like run away from England. Which would kind of make sense because they were witches, family of witches, and they had the prophecies. Anyway, we realize we do it through through the prophecy that Virtue read out back in the flashback about the apple that nobody can eat will rise in 1980. And they repeat the prophecy and they say, we bought this amount of shares in Jobs' company and now they're worth $40 million. So like we have established that the family has used the prophecies that were accurate by Agnes Nutter. So you did not pick up that the prophecies were not identical identical? No. Because I'm a fucking nitpicker. When we hear the prophecy 2214 for the first time, it's slightly different than when we hear it for the second time because the second time there's one more word in it because the first time it's master Jobus machine and good fortune will tend thy days and when child says it it's master Jobus thinking machine and good fortune will tend thy days and later on when we see it thinking is actually written there so the first version was the wrong one interesting yes i'm horrible <laughs> Maybe Virtue wasn't very strong on reading. I don't know. I don't want to judge her, but she was not giving the exact wording. Mm. Anyway, we learned that through the prophecies, the family has become quite successful in the world and they do have the resources to then later on focus on just Armageddon. So for me, the most takeaway on this is that basically everyone else, just like the mom says, had the easy job because all of their job was to follow the prophecies and 
acquire wealth and status and standard. And the kid is actually going to be the one who's going to have to face Armageddon because her name is Anathema. And in one of the predictions, it says that she will be there. I have a question. Yes. Why didn't they just call every single girl that they have in the family Anathema? How do they know that this specific kid needs to be anathema? Because there's going to be a prediction that tells them when to name the child anathema. Because they didn't make it super clear. This is simply my extrapolation because everything gets predicted by Agnes and so she would not have let it up for chance that the right generation gets named correctly. The only thing that I could think of is that if they just randomly name the children Anathema, she would be able to say the third child that you name Anathema. Like she knew that this was going to be the first child they're going to actually end up naming Anathema. So the pressure on the naming must have been terrible. For me, the only thing left to say on this is, hey, no pressure on the kid, right? Yeah. It's just wild to me. Poor child. There is no way you grow up unharmed this way. So now we go over to Dorking Surrey and get the other new introduction of our characters in this episode where we meet the young Newt. Yes! And I literally laughed out loud when the camera bumps against the window. I know, it's so good! My question is, do you think it's because he is the ultimate nemesis for all things technical? (laughs) Yes, I do think that. I am absolutely happy with that explanation. And he's not just the ultimate nemesis for all things tech. He also in this scene seems to be just incredibly unlucky, like no matter what happens. And so I do feel for him, but for some reason I do not connect with him either in this scene or in the later scenes when we see him. He does not touch my heart. I do because I love him. But I think that I just have this whole relationship to Newton that I have from uh, the book. And because I love Jack Whitehall as well. And in my head, he's just such a perfect Newton. Like, when I found out that he is Newt, it just made my heart sing. I just fucking love the way he plays him and everything. It just fits really, really, really well for me. So I do have such a strong relationship to Newton in general. I don't have anything else because, like I said, I did not really connect with him. Yeah, heart eyes. Heart eyes. (laughs) Yeah, I just love him. Just such boom, boom. Yeah, I do think that that he is actually one of my favorite characters. That is a very good because he's not one of mine. And so he will need your support in the episodes to come. So you will be our Nigel apologist. No, our Newton apologist. Happy to. Because there is just so much that he goes through. And it's such a growing experience for Newton throughout this entire thing. Poor baby. He starts off so hopeful and he really wants to be what he ends up being. Well, not being, but he, he really he really wants to be helpful and be good. And it's just heartbreaking that he can't. But yeah, no, uh, we get to actually see the jump to 
current events. We get to see Newton getting a job and being really like, I can do this one. I'm so good with numbers. I can do it this time. And he walks into the firm and basically takes out the entire company, which is, I think, excellent and so well done. He just looks so innocent. I have a super random association with that because in one of the few mangas that I actually still read to this day, there is a character that has to wear gloves whenever he touches a mobile phone or any technical device because he will just break it. So that is my association. Association. Maybe that's why I'm so inclined to feel for Newton because this tends to happen to me often. Oh, you mean you are the reason that your audacity just randomly shut down and stopped working? I mean, it would be topical, wouldn't it? It's extremely topical. Wow. And it would not be the first time. True. So we are in current times and we switch over to the airport where Anathema has just arrived. And just gonna say it once because I don't want to keep objectifying, but oh my god, she is incredible attractive. She is extremely beautiful. That is very true. Oh, then she, when she puts on the glasses. Both. She's the one effect where you take off the glasses and then you have a beautiful woman. No. She's both. She is always, it doesn't matter how, when, where, what. What an incredibly beautiful human being. So gotta stop first thing now. <laughs> Sorry. She is incredibly honest as well with the immigration officer. Which is hilarious because you're never honest at the airport. They don't need to know your business. Have you ever been asked like more questions than the one standard like business or pleasure at immigration? It's horrifying. It is horrifying. And I usually, first time this happened to me, I actually nearly got kicked out of the country <laughs> because my brain... When it goes to overload like that, I tend to make very inappropriate jokes. <laughs> and you do not make jokes with immigration officers, no. especially not on a US border. I can tell you that. Oh, no. We go into the Witchfinder scene and I'm going to let you talk about this because I uh, don't really like the Witchfinders. Okay, first of all, fuck patriarchy. We're going to get to that. Second of all, I actually felt so bad for Newton because he gets fired for trying to do his job and like pressing a button and somehow taking out the grid. Eh? Poor baby, poor baby. And his mom loves him so much. So he doesn't want to tell her that he failed again. And it's just heartbreaking watching him go through this. So to me, he's in such a bad place mentally that it makes complete sense that he stops and listens to this weirdo on the street. That is a really good point. He is in such a bad place mentally. Obviously, I did a short freeze frame to make sure I read the entire sign from Shadwell. And so the sign reads, Witches, blight crops slash cast the evil eye slash dance naked in brackets and abomination, worship the devil, have too many nipples slash call their cats funny names. So how many of those do you check? <laughs> So we get a lot of these ref references in this episode. Yes. <laughs> Shadwell himself is an absolute arsehole. We hate him. He yes. stinks. Yes. And he basically fucking robs poor Newton, who's so gullible. And I think Newton at this point is just glad that somebody's paying attention to him and he's slightly weirded out and he is trying to find any reason not to go home, to talk to his mom, to tell her 
that he failed again. So that feels like that's the only reason he would be talking to him. Actually, a really good point that this is basically the only, let's call it positive interaction outside of his mother that he probably has had in quite a while. So even while this interaction is not positive, it is less negative on a personal against him and his capabilities or incapabilities. So... As much as I don't like the scene, you made it make more sense to me. And that's why I'm here. Yeah, I mean, that's what we do for each other. Obviously, there is more uh, freeze framing. Oh, yeah, of course, because I'm sure you're going to have the entire ad, right? Because that is my fuck patriarchy moment. Well, the ad I did not write down because it's very, very readable, but way more important to the left of the Edward is an entry pleading for the return of Uncle Terry's lost head. It is one of many little homages to Neil Gaiman's friend and Good Omens co-author Terry Pratchett, who died before the series could be made. The head frequently appears in the official author photos. It is almost as famous as he is. The head can also be seen in the Zerophil shop, awaiting the never-to-come return of its owner. Okay, now I'm sad. Thanks. Fuck you. It's not done because... Alongside to the Join the Professionals newspaper advert and below the advert asking for information on the lost hat where you actually can read uh, Lost Hat and Scarf last seen in a bookshop near Soho. Oh my god! Is an advert about a lost book and it's not the book, the nice and accurate prophecies as we know it. No, it's The Color of Magic and you obviously know that this is the first of the Discworld books. Shut the fuck up! I didn't know that! I mean, I knew obviously that that's the first book of the Discworld but I didn't see the newspaper and now I feel like I just want to hug. And I want to reread a lot of this world. I'm looking at my tiny, tiny, tiny little collection that I have here. I have only like eight books from this world over there. Like, it's so incredibly beautiful that there are so many tiny, tiny touches and nods and hints within this show. It shows the love that everybody who created this show has towards Sir Terry Pratchett. And well-deserved because he was an impeccable man. His imagination and his style of writing and his sense of humor was something that has made such a huge impact on millions of people around the world, including myself. And I'm just so happy that we get to experience it from another medium and that other people feel the same way. The appreciation that is shown in all these tiny bits, because this is not something that you realize when you just watch it. Yes, I also have tears in my eyes. Don't you worry. But like, this is something that you have to pay attention to. You have to either pause it or you have to read up on the trivia. So this is there for the people who actually care. And I love it in general when shows put in things for the people that care. But especially with this emotional weight to it. So this I had to include, obviously. And I wanted to include it in the scene and not in the general facts and funds. It has much more, much bigger impact this way. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, this is exactly... Just this scene alone is a perfect example of why I love doing this podcast. First of all, me being able to give you a reason to not just hate this scene but also <laughs> you giving me a detail that I would have never otherwise would have never seen I love this we do good together there's maybe a reason why we have been doing this for nearly three years huh? <laughs> yeah chances are oh my god the last 10 minutes was an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> and that says something coming from me okay 
So, basically, fuck patriarchy. Advert says, be a man. I saw that and I was just like, stubby. Now, Shadwell tells Newton to come back to him at 11 a.m. the next day and bring scissors with no other explanation. And he gives him the newspaper. And that's all for this scene. So we move over to the Jasmine Cottage. Beautiful name. So we get to see her moving in. And basically the first thing that she does after bringing in the bike is that she puts out some pages. And the last thing we see her looking at when she's like, let's get to work, is this very classic depiction of devil. The tongue coming out and the horns and the very hairy everything and... But for a change, it's not a Baphomet, but actually a devil. Yeah. Because I was kind of expecting it to be a Baphomet, but no, because this is Gaiman, so it's better. Yes, of course. It always <laughs> needs to be a step above. So this is a very nice, very short scene that we get to see Anathema making herself home. But now... We go to my favorite moment. It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. I'm not gonna lie. Yes. Absolutely. Before we get into it, I need to say those pants are so incredibly tight. <laughs> see... Now that I've met David Tennant, actually two days ago, oh my god, I can't believe that actually happened. I can understand how he looks the way he looks <laughs> as Crowley. Because to me, it's just like he's so different in each character because of the movement and because of the costumes and the way he speaks and stuff like that. But seeing him as David, as like David David himself, because we were doing stage door after his play that we want to see, he ran out from the stage door and ran past us with so much spunk. It was just like, hey, just ran past us basically. He didn't make the noise, obviously. But I did not realize it was him until he was like on the other side of the entire queue. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Was that David? And then like, he's so much shorter than I expected him to be. Yes. Because his talent and his acting. He seems so much bigger on screen and stage. Yeah. He's so much less tall in person. Yeah. He's very larger than life when he's working. While when you see him in person, he is a regular-sized person. I don't know if, <laughs> if you listeners can understand what I'm trying to describe. I totally get what you mean. So, to our favorite scene of this show, basically. One of them, anyway. So, we get the scaring plants into growing better. Grow better. It's just wow. And the way he says it as well. And the fact that the plants are shaking. Yes. All of those little details, the fact that he takes away the plant. And he brings back the empty pot. To show them that he means business. It's like, this is so perfect. It's so hilarious. Do you have anything else for this? Grow better is the only thing that... <laughs> you know what I think? I think Crowley actually loves his plants in a way, in his own way. Well... Because he wants them to be the best they can be. Yeah, that's not love. No. It feels parental. Yeah, that does not mean that it's love and it does not mean it's good or healthy. Even though they are the most healthy plants there are, but at what cost, my dear? At what cost? 
We go into the bookshop and we have another one of my favorite interactions. Michael Sheen acts the shit out of this. It's so good. The more offended he gets during this phone call <laughs> and how absolutely upset he is by the final rudeness at the end of the call is absolutely brilliant. The baffled face that he pulls was like, there's no need to talk like that. But uh, the important things that this scene establish is the relevance of the book the rarity of the book itself because we all know and we're gonna hear that a little bit later on the book itself unfortunately didn't do as well as agnes hopes slash predicted which is curious right i think that there was just wishful thinking for her that she didn't actually see it it wasn't one of her actual prophecies it was just like oh i'm sure this is gonna sell <laughs> maybe but yeah so we also get like the exposition part that there is this book it's super rare nobody has it but we already know anathema has it because she drew into it as a child in the front page and we also know that's the original edition that has been handed out from generation yeah it's the one we have to do more witchfinder stuff and we meet i think our final edition of the main cast here at least from this episode yeah and that is of course madam tracy and i adore madam tracy she is absolute perfection she is hilarious and she is an absolute sweetheart and she just doesn't give a shit about how shadwell treats her you know what we should just call him shitwell <laughs> because he calls her jezebel and he calls her names and she is she's just like ah i mean jezebel is very accurate given what her implied profession is. Well, yeah, but he's not saying it as a as an accurate description. He's saying it as an insult. Yeah, of course. So, you know, she's not being bothered by it because she knows who she is and she's proud of it. She's happy with who she is, clearly. Even from this short interaction that we have, I am kind of in love with her. She is pretty incredible. Absolutely. So after the initial interaction with Madame Tracy, Newton finally enters the Witchfinder's room. And this is just a very beautiful moment. So they talk about these little things and how, they're, the, how they fight witches. And Shadwell asks him, what is the first weapon that a Witchfinder has against witches? And Newton points out the weird thingy that's in the cabinet there weapon and obviously it's not the thing so he thinks about it and remembers i was supposed to bring scissors he takes out the scissors and this is the most jack whitehall thing that he's done so far <laughs> where he takes out the scissors and when uh, shitwell asks him what to do with the scissors he just turns it in his hand and does a stubbing motion <sighs> and his face is not Newton face. His face is Jack Whitehall doing comedy face. And I it's one of the most hilarious things. I fucking love that. And that's the thing. Like I as I mentioned before, Jack is a great comedian and I've seen him do a lot of different things. And I really enjoy his comedy and his style of comedy. So this really, really works for me. Stubby stop. Maybe it doesn't work as much for me because I'm simply not familiar with the actor. Yeah. Maybe that's that's the difference. I have a relationship towards Newton from the book as well, but... Yeah, so you have two layers and I have none, so... <laughs> I feel like in the book, he is more 
clueless and I feel like in the show so far in this episode Newton gives us a little bit more sass or rather Jack gives us a little bit more sass to the character which I enjoy. We go back to Crowley's place and we learn a very important tidbit about Crowley which is his first name. Oh yeah! And that is Anthony Crowley. Of course, once again in this scene, we also have him walking again. And I'm still not over the way Crowley walks. You will never be over the way Crowley works. Crowley walks. Works and walks. Yeah, both. Also, they talk on the phone. They meet up and we have Crowley driving once again. And his driving style is just as erratic as his walking style. There's this one moment... When Aziraphal goes like, uh, careful, there's someone on the street or something like, careful, there's someone. And, and he goes like, she's she's walking on the street. She knows the danger or she knows what she's in for. She knows the risks she's taking. It's just like, wow. I love the way he drives. Also, I had completely forgotten that he does have other CDs besides Queen. He has them, but they all play Queen. But he knows what the Velvet Underground sounds like. Yes, he does. So this is all connected to the book explanation. But now we go to Tatsfield. And as I made sure to point out last episode, I paid attention. And Wensendale does not only say actually in every of his scene, he does say actually so many times. It's actually getting annoying now that I'm sensitive to it. Well, actually, it is quite annoying. He even starts his very first sentence with actually. <laughs> there is so many characters in this episode so far that I have completely forgotten about the kids when we got to this scene. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. They're quite important, aren't they? But this time we get a bit more time with every one of them. And I noticed that Brian has way more ice cream than anyone else in the group. Also, half of that ice cream is on his person. Well, apparently everyone needs a Brian who's a bit grubby or something. But it's interesting to me that not Adam is the one who has the most ice cream, but Brian is the one who has the most ice cream. Adam, Pepper and Wednesday Dale have the same amount of ice cream, so it's very interesting to me. Also, it's hilarious for me that Pepper, who is named Pippin Galadriel Moonchild, has very obviously vanilla ice cream, which is the most boring flavor you could possibly have, given her very, very fancy names. Also, Pippin Galadriel Moonchild is Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings never-ending story. Which is hilarious to me. And they called themselves hippies. Maybe it was a fantasy camp that they were spending the summer out and not a hippie camp. I find it very, very entertaining. And also, as I said, in the fact that Fun's Moonchild is actually Alistair Crowley's name for the Antichrist. So we theoretically have two Antichrists in this group, Adam and Moonchild. We get the confirmation that Adam, in fact, got to keep Dog. And Dog is such a cute dog. I just want to kind of pet him and play with him. He's very cute. That's true. Adam says, of course I got to keep him. We're together till the end. And I was like, hell yeah, you are. It's very sweet in a very fucked up way. Like all these hints and pieces that go towards the end, basically. Were you as disturbed as I was with the happy association and the full acceptance that these kids have for witch burnings? No. Okay. When you think about it, they're all 11, 12, 10, 11, 12. When I was 11, I was horrified by the fact that people got burned alive at the stake. Yes, but you have to realize that this is a different type of children. If you think about it, and this is something that really comes through when they play the English-British Inquisitors a couple of scenes later. 
It's a lot about imagination and taking things as they are and just presenting your own reality. And at that age, I was just actually remembering how easy playing make-believe was and just taking things like they are facts, especially when you have somebody, you know something, you know certain details and you're so proud to present them and the other kids can't go, oh, I didn't know that. No, the other kids, kids have to go, oh yeah, that's true. That is so cool because that's the age where you're trying to level up with all the other children around you and you need to trump all the other children with the information that you have. And it's just something this kind of play is kind of built on, if that makes sense. I had a very different childhood, apparently. I mean, I, I get the whole, you have to like get along and peer pressure and yaddy, yaddy, yaddy and everything. But historical things or, or things that I learned about that were fucked up, I did not consider cool or anything. Now we get a quick cut in the middle of the scene, uh, seeing Anathema struggling to find the thing that she's looking for but then we get all the information dump about the burning and the witches and stuff like that and basically one of the very childlike very kid-like moments is I've been to Barcelona I can teach you Spanish he doesn't fucking speak Spanish obviously but he's been to Barcelona he's fucking gonna pretend to speak Spanish because they say ole a lot which is also false also Barcelona is part of Catalonia which obviously kids don't know Again, one of those moments when it's like, but I know something and I will milk this information to get something out of it and get status in this group and come up with something, which is something that is already building up more and more and more, and especially in this episode, please my leader Adam. Because regardless of what any of them say, they all look to Adam for approval. Adam is the one who speaks the least out of them, if you notice that. Yeah, of course. So he speaks the least, yet whatever he says is taken it's gospel. Yeah. as it is. So they are not actually competing to trump each other. They're trying to please their leader Adam. So the information actually, when he when he comes up with I can teach you Spanish is not meant for the two of them which is kind of interesting which I didn't think when I was watching the episode but yeah basically to me it's a, it's a lot of kids play for me the three do not register as everything we do is meant to please or entertain or suck up to Adam Adam is obviously their leader and everything he says is taken as gospel and as rule but the normal interactions that they have as a group and especially the three between them are normal interactions with each other of course they're going to one up another because they're still people because that no matter if you're a child or an adult you still tend to do that sometimes but did not register to me at all like it did to you <laughs> it's fine no like when you when you think about it like the point what i'm trying to make i don't know if this interpretation that i just laid out makes any sense whatsoever i might just edit this and will go to myself oh what the fuck am i on about i see how you come to that conclusion i just don't think it's actually there just like when i sometimes go off on my oh and this and this and this and you sit there like no <laughs> As I said, it's entirely possible that I'm going to listen back to this and go like, what the fuck? Or you agree with yourself, which is also fine. We have another short intercut scene where Azerophel and Kraugi are in the car and we are now in Tatfield's surroundings and doesn't seem familiar and yada 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 and we learn about like oh yeah there's an air base here because it was necessary for the plan and our guy there and ha 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 and great plan and everything it actually was a really good plan to be fair it is actually surprisingly intricate and actually went really really well 
until... But, as Aziraphale says, evil always contains the sea to its own destruction. <laughs> and then Crowley just goes... No, it was just a regular fuck-up, probably. And Crowley is obviously right, because it was just... It was the human factor. Exactly. And so it was a bugger, right? <laughs> it's just, again, yet another interaction between the two of them that shows off beautifully who they are as characters and how they interact with each other and it's just something that is so inviting and it's something that is so intriguing and you just want to see more of it. We go shortly back to the kids and Anathema actually. They are now walking together and we have some more fun with the whole torture device and everything. And at some point Anathema says you guys are hilarious but I like I need to continue on. I'm just like yeah hilarious is not really the right word here girl. I mean, at this point, she's a witch and I think that she was way more worried when they first started talking about burning and and torturing the witches. But then when she realizes it's actually just a game to them at this point and the way they play the game, she understands that it's just kids. What she does in this point, and that actually made me do a bit of a double take, she starts asking Arab questions like, have you seen any wild beasts around here or things like that? And he literally goes, the only beasts around is dog. Say hello, dog. And the dog goes, oh, he literally makes the, the hello sound that you can hear. Like if you listen to the husky talking videos, this is actually what he does, which I found absolutely hilarious. But the fact that Anathema is there for the sole purpose of looking for Adam and she has a conversation with him and she completely misses him. I was like, how is it possible? They spell it out in the episode how it's possible. Which exactly brings me to the fact that later on they actually explain it. But at this moment I was like, how is she missing him? She's literally talking to him. And I'm pretty sure that was in the book as well. So I was just like, again, had this anxiety rushing through. And again, something I actually really, really enjoy about this. So she misses it and leaves them alone because she has a job to do. Yeah, she needs to divine more somehow, as she will do later on. But first we go to the convent. Except it's not a convent anymore. There is a lot of weird stuff. They get attacked and they get shot, both of them actually, don't they? And obviously it's made in a very fun, revealing way. Crowley is shot in red, we see that first. And then we see, oh, Israfel is shot in blue. It's not an extra wound. No, it's paintballs. And now we enter Cap's territory because the interaction between the two of them about Israfel being straight up devastated about the fact that he kept this coat clean for so many centuries. And if he miracles this away himself, he will always know it was there. And apparently it's different if Crowley does it for him. Apparently so, yeah. That is what he said, yeah. This is, for me, this is all Cap's territory. This is, they're so cute. Look at that pod. Look at that cyclist. They're so cute. So I completely lost my shit. The face that Crowley has when he's blowing away the stain. It's like, oh, I got you, boo. No worries. I'll do that for you. Don't worry. You don't have to miracle it away. I'll do it. The cyclance, as Raphael does in the scene, to me is the first explicit and visible show of affection that Azrafel does towards Crowley. So to me, this is incredibly important. And obviously, so I was obsessed with it. Also, I don't know if you've ever played paintball. It's a lot of fun, but also very, very painful. 
at that point, Azrafel picks up the gun and starts contemplating about, oh, this shoots little paintballs. Oh, and Crow is like, oh, I thought that you guys didn't like guns. And Azrafel says, well, we don't, except in certain hands, because guns are giving weight to a moral argument. Which is such a stupid argument. It's the worst argument ever. And a lot of people use this as arguments. So that is a that is a way to put that. And, you know, Crowley takes it. And he runs with it. Which is perfect because despite the fact that he is utterly in love with Aziraphale, he still does not let him get away with bullshit like that. Did you notice that the people playing paintball are the people from the company that Newton broke? And that fired him? Yeah. So that was an argument for me for the real guns. Because I was like, fuck you guys. You were mean to Newton and he's a sweetheart. And speaking of sweethearts, of course, for a moment we are led to believe that now they have real guns and they're actually killing each other. But then we learn Crowley actually lets all of them have miraculous escapes, which leads to one of the most intense and hottest interactions so far probably in the show, when Aziraphale tries to compliment Crowley, and Crowley is having none of it, and is basically lifting him up and pushing him up against the wall, and now there are nose to nose, and obviously my brain just goes, now kith. And so did sisters whatever her name was, because she shows up and goes, sorry to interrupt an intimate moment. Also, why did she interrupt? It was hard. Go away, woman. (laughs) I mean, you've met her before. Yeah, she's useless. Except in running this, apparently, because this seems like a successful business. Oh, yeah. Everyone has their area of expertise, and this is apparently hers, but for our, or for Crowley's and Aziraphale's purposes, she also, once again, is useless. She is. She does recognize Crowley. She calls him by his name and he puts her in a trance in a certain specific thing which I don't really understand exactly how it works but if we need to know we will find out. It's basically a waking sleep because at the end Aziraphale says you had the dream about the thing you liked the most. Essentially yes and they ask her a few questions and she only remembers the timsy winsy toes. Unfortunately for them she does not remember that she suggested that they would name him Adam because I feel like that would be a very good hint for them to try to find him. Well, also the fact that he was ambassador to Swindon before that, like that might also have helped, but they are not really actually paying much attention. So they really certainly go away. And while they leave, we see that for some reason the police is there because apparently once you start shooting actual guns, even if they're not killing anyone in Britain, then the police will show up and take you away for shooting with real guns. So it still has consequences, some consequences. It is not deadly consequences, but there are consequences nonetheless. And they deserve it. Again, my poor baby Newton. And because Crowley cannot be the only one who is upset in this scene, we have a further continuing conversation between Crowley and Aziraphale, where Crowley refers to them as occult beings, both of them. And Aziraphale is very upset by this because angels aren't a cult, we're ethereal. (laughs) Such difference. For him, yes. And back to anathema we go. We get our God voice back, actually. We hear her way less than we did in episode one because there's way less exposition that she needs to present to us. Twice. The second or the third time, I think, this episode that we hear her. And she talks about something that was on Shitwell's sign. She says, most books on witchcraft will tell you that witches work naked because they're written by men. Which is very nicely put. Couldn't say it a better way. Yeah. 
despite being clothed, nothing really works what she's doing. And so at some point she just gets on her bike and then we have the whole, the car is driving, the bike is riding, the car is driving. And it's very obvious it's going to go bad. And as as the car is driving, this is the moment where we have Azrafel bringing out the whole fact that the area feels weird and he is trying to come up with how to name it. And he says, it feels like flashes of love are coming through the area, which is... Again, not explained. We don't get any more in this episode. So we'll keep an eye on where this is going to go. But yeah, we're on the road. And that's why I was mentioning that it might be the area, not just the convent. I completely missed that. So I'm going to have to pay more attention in the future. But of course, we now have the bike hitting the car. And Crowley is factually correct. She hit him, not he hit her. Of course, because he would never hit anybody. It's Crowley. (laughs) Well, that might be as it is. But in this instance, he is right. She rode into the side of his car. So by definition, she hit him. And obviously, they can't see very well in the dark. So we have the classic Let There Be Light, which obviously is taken from the Bible. And Crowley turns off the light, which I like very much that the angel turns on the light and the demon turns off the light. And now Aziraphale is just doing miracles left and right. He's healing the wrist. He's fixing the bike. He's adjusting the car. It's just everything at once. The bone mending was a lot. Really? Well, I mean, we had this conversation when we were covering Lucifer. Like, You're so squeamish when it comes to some things. It's hilarious. Some things, and some things I'm completely fine with. I can't explain it. There are no rules to it. It's so random. So now everything is miracled, and Azurafel obviously has already decided that they're taking her for a ride. And Crowley, of course, concedes. And now I have a question, because we had this absolutely hilarious moment when we cut over to the inside of the car and bicycle by Queen starts playing and it is playing on the radio so it's not just like a background music it is actually happening in the car and we can see Anathema's just going like why is this song playing what what just happened did I what my bike did not have gears and she, she notices to be fair if anybody can figure it out I believe it's Anathema but we shall see however I want to know what love is no that's the wrong band If Bicycle came on because Crowley specifically put it on or did the car sense the situation and just started playing Bicycle? As far as I'm aware, the car turns everything into Queen. I would also say it decides which song. I think so. I think that the car can sense the situation and plays an according... Well, not sense... Aziraphale changed the car to have a bike rack and placed the bike on it. It's basically shoving a bike up the car's butt. So it's like, bicycle, bicycle. Basically, yeah. I love that. I'm glad that we're on the same page on this. They drop her off. Aziraphale fixes the fixed bike back to being the actual bike. And he is so incredibly proud of himself. He's adorable. So proud. The little baby. adorable. I love it. God. And Crowley is obviously annoyed by that because he does not do good deeds. That's not who he is. And he calls him Angel. Which is very cute. I also think that he's partly annoyed because Aziraphale is paying so much attention to someone else. And this is the moment when I was like, when he calls him Angel in front of her, she doesn't react. And I think it's just something that's going to log into her brain later in a different context. It's just, you know, one of those things where like, because she didn't react at 
all, I think that it's gonna come back to her. If she puts all what just happened into context and starts thinking about it rationally and not in confusion and shock in which she is now, it might actually lead her to realization that this may have happened. However, we know that she left her book behind. But before we see that play out, she goes inside and she has a video call with her mom. I happen to own the very same cover that she uses for her screen. <laughs> I have basically the identical one, mine is black. So that was hilarious because I actually failed on realizing how to use it. It took me way more tries than I'm willing to admit to use it right. So it was like, wait, I should have known how to use it because I've actually seen this before. Whoops. And then, of course, in the conversation with her mother, she realizes that the book is gone. And for some reason, she runs out thinking that she might still see them or something. I don't know. I think that she wants to retrace her steps and go back to the place of the accident to check if it may have fallen out of her. But then why does she stop when she's running out of her door and looking down the street after the car? Did she? Yeah. Because yours would make way more sense. But then she would have to grab the bike and go back to where the accident happened. And she doesn't do that. She looks down the street into the direction that the car drove off. I don't know. Maybe it's just like me hoping that she's gonna do that. Who knows? But anyway, one more thing that she mentioned while she's on the call with her mom she mentions that she's looking specifically for young beast and the lesser beast which actually when you think about it makes complete sense because young beast is adam and lesser beast is dog because he's lesser than he was i did i totally did not catch that she just randomly mentions that during the call as part of the prophecy the antichrist the beast and the hellhound the lesser beast i'm not 100 sure in exact what sentence it is made but i know that she says she is there to look for the young beast and the lesser beast yeah and the young beast would be adam and the lesser base would be the dog. I did not even catch that conversation, I, I have to admit. Like, apparently I missed quite a few bits and pieces in this scene. Ah, it happens. I also missed stuff. That is fine. We go to the cafe where, once again, Aziraphel is eating and Crowley is watching. And just drinking. According to IMDb, what Aziraphel is eating here is an angel cake. Of course it fucking is. So I put that on the list of foods. Aww very cute. Now we finally here get the explanation of why Anathema didn't realize Adam was Adam because uh, we have this whole cloaking device explained. Which makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Yeah, when Crowley can't remember gets this whole you know how you sometimes forget oh never 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 happens to us no so he starts talking about a water sliding off something's back you know and and he brushes off attention like that and he just gets so pissy about not being able to remember did you instantly remember like it was like obviously a duck I did this time. I'm not sure if I did before. So obviously I was uh, obsessed with the fact that I remembered it and Crowley didn't. And I was honestly a bit disappointed when later on he does remember it. <laughs> I love the timing of the of remembering that information. No, he just like yells out, duck! I mean, that's how it goes, right? When something is like stuck in your brain and you can't and can't and can't remember it and suddenly it comes and then we just yell out potentially inappropriate shit at the worst possible time. It's not like we have ever done this, but yeah. <sighs> I have no idea what you're talking about. So we essentially get the explanation about Adam. We get the explanation about themselves and how that relationship works. It just kind of continues the conversation they have as they were leaving the uh, ex-convent. <laughs> ex-convent sounds so bad. <laughs> I love it. I know, right? 
at this moment, I just wanted to point out and enjoy the fact that I am really satisfied with the information. The exposition works really well. The yeah. exposition work, because this is exactly the question that I was asking a couple of scenes earlier, which, you know, gets explained. I don't get the information straight away, which can be slightly grating sometimes because it feels slightly condescending. <laughs> they took a little bit, but they didn't make me wait for too long, which I do appreciate. So yay for good writing. Woo-hoo. It's called delayed gratification, honey. I don't know what that means. Definitely. I have no idea. We go back to Tedfield. And we have the conversation between the parents and then we cut over to Adam's room. And it was incredibly obvious to me that Dog would be in Adam's room. Absolutely. But also, I got the feeling that the parents are actually slightly creeped out by Adam, but are not able to acknowledge that. And also, I find Adam incredibly creepy. It, I think, quite well relates to the conversation about Adam being able to unconsciously throw off any suspicions or whatsoever. So as a parent, naturally, you're going to have concerns about what your child is doing outdoors all day long or, you know, things like that. It's just normal, regular things that a parent worries about. But they can't because of the protective thing. Yeah, he has a thing where where anything that would bring any suspicions to him just is untangible. They can't put their finger on it. They can't realize, fully realize what's going on. So, Yes, I agree with you. I think that they are creeped out by him, but they don't understand why or even that is happening. That's the thing. I think they are creeped out, but they are not aware that they are creeped out. But the feeling still remains. It's this fleeting feeling of like... It's a constant deja vu, probably. But yeah, as as I was listening to them in the context, it was really, really nicely written. And as she gets up to go check on him, I literally wrote down... <laughs> Ah, Adam, the angel, when he sleeps and then she comes back and literally says, he's so sweet when he's asleep. The implication of that is that he is actually a terror when he is awake, but that can never be addressed. It's just something unaddressable and I really enjoy that aspect. You mean ineffable, honey? Cannot be put into words? cannot be described. It's ineffable. I feel like ineffable is intentional though, right? Well, the protection around Adam is intentional. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. In that case, you're absolutely right. There we are. Maybe we find an ineffable something in every episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not too bad. As the scene ends, we get a detailed look at all of his toys. And then we get to take a look at him and hear weird whispery noises. So Adam hears voices in his sleep. We don't know what that's about. It's a classic horror movie. I couldn't tell you that because... (laughs) Trust me. You know, that situation. But also, knowing Neil Gaiman, it will get explained eventually. So for now, I am just making a note. So the angel and the demon are sitting in a car and they're having a conversation about... What should they do to try to find the boy? Because they can't find it. And humans might be better at it, but also it's going to be difficult because reasons that we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes. Now, Azrafel brings up that he has a network. A network? Network, he calls it. And then Crowley says he has a network. A network? And now they consider getting those networks together and get them to work this case together. However, Crowley says, oh, my network is not very politically sophisticated, which we're going to get to that in the next episode. I'm pretty sure, right? So I can't wait. 
for that situation to be resolved. Brilliant groundwork for that, though. And then we finally get, he drops off Azrafel in front of the bookshop. And as they are getting off the car, he just yells out, ducks! Which, excellent moment, we already talked about that. And the book is discovered. But only by Azrafel. Exactly. Crowley doesn't actually see the book. He just mentions that it's definitely not his because he doesn't read books. Which is sad. But it's also very crowdly. And so Aziraphale, once again, I am proven wrong, is a very bad actor because he is completely flustered. He's not even able to like proper answer anything. He grabs the book and he goes into the shop and leaves a slightly confused crowdly behind. And I just want to say, because we haven't said it so far, the car is so very pretty. Ah, it is your thing now. Are you in disagreement? It is amazing. No, see, the Bentley is incredible. I mean, it's obviously the wrong Bentley for the time but that is totally irrelevant because it's beautiful and it's Crowley's we go into the last scene and obviously when all the predictions everything come through I will go into a horrendous freeze frame montage that probably will be in the bonus so if you want to listen to everything because you're too lazy to read it yourselves become a patron at patreon.com slash TOT podcast We noticed before that Aziraphale's cup has angel wings. It's so cute. So I obviously also took the time to make sure to read the entire front page of the book because it not only is the uh, nice and accurate prophecies, it is also being a certain and precise history from the present day until the ending of this world, containing therein many diverse wonders and precepts for the wise, more complete than ever yet before published, concerning the strange times ahead and events of a wonderful nature. And I want to note that every line is written written differently it's normal caps normal caps and then in italic it's horrifying don't do that please stick to one style of font (laughs) nobody will tell agnes what to do i don't care i tell you so please don't i'll do my best please don't ever look at my notes again oh no i I won't no worries now we get this whole thing where azrafel is starting to read the book And this is just something really, really well done where he's really excited. He puts on his little gloves. Oh, it's so cute. He sits down. He makes cocoa for himself into the angel mug and he starts flipping. He opens it randomly on one thing and reads one prediction. And that prediction is about him reading the book. And that his cocoa is getting cold. And the face he makes when he's like, cocoa, what? And he looks over to the cup and he's he's like, it's so hilarious. It's incredible. I just love my... Michael Sheen and his acting so much, especially like in this scene, it's absolutely incredible. And oh, he spends his entire night reading through the book. So we can only assume that angels remember pretty much everything that they read, right? Eidetic memory, probably, yeah. And he probably read majority of the book. So now we have an entity. Potentially, yeah. Good point. Potentially read all of the prophecies. So he has the best chance to not just find Adam, but also predict or guess what is going to happen in the last two days before the apocalypse. The thing is, just because he remembers the wording of the prophecies does not mean he understands them. Because Anathema is trained in understanding and basically translating the prophecies. He now knows them word by word, but he has no experience in understanding them. He has no experience, but he has better context, I'd say, than Anathema. I would not be so sure of that, I actually think. I don't know. It depends how much Anathema actually knows about 
about the ineffable plan. I would equate it with Anathema has a bow and she knows where the target is, but she can't see it. But she has been shooting the bow her entire life. And Aziraphale now has a bow. He can see everything all at once, but he has never once in his life shot the bow. Yeah, that actually is a great explanation. I love that. So together they would be unstoppable. <laughs> Unfortunately, he is already in love with somebody else. Thankfully, yes. Speaking of being in love with somebody else, there is the phone call now coming up and... Aziraphale says, we're friends. And it's... Oh no, he friend zones him. <gasps> no, 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 that's not the problem. The problem is that he's lying to him by omission because he's not talking to him about the book, but he's telling, but he's saying that we're friends. But you don't lie to your friends, not even by omission. And so... <gasps> My heart is breaking and I'm very unhappy about this. Yeah, I did not like that whatsoever. There's no time to dwell on this because they end the phone call. And phone call, haha. We then go into the horrifying thing for it is the number of a man, number as in telephone number. And I mean, seriously, the fucking telephone number of the Antichrist's home is the area code for Tadfield and 666. It's absolutely hilarious. I love it so much. I love that he goes, oh, could it be that simple? And I'm like, yes, could it actually be that simple? It's so simple. It's actually brilliant. And it gets even better because he calls and then, of course, uh, Dad answers the phone. And in the background, we have Adam say exactly what the prediction says. So Zero Felt says, sorry right number and hangs up so perfect and this is incredibly in character but it's also fucking hilarious i feel like those are the best tiny moments with, especially with a zero fell where it is so perfect in character but also fucking funny and of course the delivery that michael sheen provides is putting it on a whole nother level very very obviously so since we're now been recording for nearly three hours time to wrap this up and go into the final thoughts I honestly have forgotten what happens in which episode because I binged it the first time. And so I have no memory of what is when. I thought both at the same time that more and less happened in this episode. So some bits were surprising and I missed some that I remember should be happening around this time. We meet the witch and the witch hunters. And like I have already stated, the witch hunters are my least favorite part of the show, especially Shitwell, who we have already uh, renamed accordingly. Everything about Aziraphale and Crowley, of course, continues to delight. Most notably, obviously, it's uh, Crowley and his plans and Aziraphale and the book. I am curious how many predictions were taken verbatim from the original book and how many they made up for the show because they have made up so many tiny things for the show to show appreciation. And so we're going to keep an eye out for that as well. As I also said, I stand corrected regarding who's the better actor. This time it was the other way around. I also feel that before Israfel found the book, he was actually coming around to more actively liking Crowley back. But now he's obsessed with the book and so there's no more space for Crowley. So that progression is going to have to be put on pause, which is devastating, of course. Also, I think we spent this entire episode in a single day with all the flashbacks. So four more episodes and still two more days until the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world. So I think we got through introducing all of our new characters now, right? 
I think we definitely going to have to meet the other three horsemen. But other than that, I don't think there's going to be anybody else coming, hopefully, because there is a lot of characters. I mean, I kind of expect some some heavy hitters at some point, simply because it's the Antichrist. So, Well, we'll see. But just based entirely on the amount of characters that we are dealing with, you can tell this is based on a book. But I am honestly loving it so much so far. It makes me ask questions. It gives me answers in a due time. What else can I want from a show? <laughs> Azraphal and Crowley are totally and completely in love. Adam has a cloaking device. Anathema is all over the place, meeting everybody without realizing it. All of these little things are a beautiful setup with hints of a solution. And I cannot wait to see what's going to happen next. And with this, we say thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us as The Apple of Truth on Twitter and Instagram. We will keep you updated if or when Twitter crashes and burns. You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com. If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash T-A-O-T podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write us a positive iTunes review. They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.